0: The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Wednesday, we learned the governing PCs at Queen's Park are planning to extend the current relief line subway proposal and build a subway which spans Ontario Place to the Ontario Science Centre. And Premier Doug Ford claims they can build the much longer line two years sooner than the current plan. Ford also revealed a plan to build the Young North subway extension from Finch to Richmond Hill, plus a three-stop Scarborough subway extension and an extension of the Eglinton Crosstown to Pearson Airport. All this was announced without fully looping in Toronto Mayor John Tory. Libby Snymer spoke with NDP transit critic Jessica Bell, Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton, and Transportation Minister Jeff Urich about the new $28.5 billion transit plan.
2: Well, there's a number of, of things that uh, we are, are putting forward. Uh, we can amortize the cost so it makes it uh, uh, easier to put more money into our investments. Uh, we can streamline the process to uh, make utilities, put us as a priority project. Uh, but we're also going to be uh, using different technology uh, on the on the interior line uh, to start with, which means we don't have to dig as big, or, as, big as a hole in the ground. Uh, we're using a lighter car, uh, which we can move much faster and therefore move more people, and a different rail than the current uh, heavy track that's in the old subway station. That's old technology. So if we can utilize the newer technology, um, we're able to actually build it faster and, and come in at a cheaper price.
3: In terms of the city and the mayor, he said that he was not even informed what would be announced. Is that right? And and why did it happen like that?
2: They've been very much a part of the process. Um, you know, Mayor Tory is on the same page as us. We both want to build transit. We both focused on the rider, and uh, you know, we're going to continue to work with them. It's a it's a great partnership. We're we're reforming, and it's going to continue as we we build these. Uh, for new projects, but also as we continue with the upload.
3: Let's bring in Jessica Bell, who is the NDP transportation critic. What do you make of these plans? I mean, on paper, they look amazing.
4: This is what we do know. We know that the City of Toronto has spent many years uh, coming up with plans and over $200 million uh, to build important projects like the relief line. Uh, Now that uh, Doug Ford has come in to upload the subway and start from scratch again, we now know that uh, transit planning has been set back. All we have now are lines on a map. That is not going to improve transit riders' commute anytime in the near future.
3: They're saying that they're going to keep the existing plan, Pape to Queen, and get it done quicker and expand on it. I mean, if they deliver on that, what's the problem with it?
4: Well, this government makes a lot of announcements. But when these announcements see the cold light of day and experts and planners and the TTC get to look at them and really do that important number crunching, the plan doesn't often add up. And I fear that all the work the city has done on planning and moving forward and doing the environmental assessment, that's essentially been thrown into a garbage can and we are starting again. And what that means is that projects like the relief line will be delayed. I have a hard time seeing it other than that, because that's what happens when you start again. Let's bring in
3: Councillor Mike Layton. What is your reaction to this announcement?
0: Well, if I had to put it in terms of a announcement on the TDC, it would be, please expect further delays. This is another one of those times when a senior order of government has said, scrap what you've been working on, pencils down, hey, I got a new idea. Have I got an idea for you? Uh, Someone's Drawn on the back of a napkin, Uh, yet another transit plan for Toronto, and they're saying, uh, and they're saying, we can do it in less time, we can do it for less money, Uh, we can get this done for you, Uh, uh, and 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 what a great dream this would be. Uh, Subways and a transit system isn't built on the back of a napkin; it's advised by experts. Uh, you put time into considering and into designing and uh, into the design of these things before uh, you start making promises that you can't possibly keep. And that's what's really unfortunate. Look, we love that the premier is talking about funding transit. Just tra- fund the right transit. We're halfway through some of, uh, planning some of these lines. Let us finish them. Look, if you if you ride public transit, if you drive on a Toronto street, you know that we need to make enormous investments in public transit. Now that might not always mean a subway in all locations. It might mean underground in some, above ground in others. But you gotta agree with the one thing that that we shouldn't have further delays. We have had Debate on these items. We will have debate again, but we need to move forward with plans, not scrap plans altogether. W- waste the money that's gone into them uh, to start to start anew, only based on 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 these very weak and transparent promises uh, that we're getting from the Premier now.
1: That was NDP transit critic Jessica Bell, City Councillor Mike Layton, and Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. If you're an investor who's feeling a bit bewildered by the ups and downs of the market in recent months, you're not alone. The signals we're getting have been confusing, with some showing growth, some indicating a slowdown, and some who say we're headed for a possible recession. Senior investment advisor Alan Small of Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth stopped by to tell us what's really going
5: on. A few years ago, the limits for RIF payments, that minimum withdrawal amount, was reduced. Now it's somewhere, I think, around 5.5% that you have to take out starting at age 72 And now, I guess, not good enough. A lot of people were still saying, you know, why, like you say, does the government dictate how much we need to withdraw from our savings to live? And so they've come up with this new way to defer more of your savings to a later age. You mentioned it is 25% or up to $150,000. Right.
3: You're right. There's that maximum. There's that maximum.
5: They always put a maximum in there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that I meet or the investors I meet, you know, deferring that to age 85 and then taking that out of life, a life annuity at that point. So I guess for the most part, in my opinion, I still, the people that I meet and talk to, they still, for the most part, drawing on their money. I agree with you. You know, I think there should be some more flexibility in how you draw it when you take it out. There shouldn't be these, these strict rules. I agree with that. I think the flexibility should be in the hands of the investor, not, you know, not, not having to be told how much they need to take out. And plus a lot of these people that do take out money and obviously accounts as income when you pull it out, they're then reinvesting it back into a tax free savings account or some sort of investment account. So yeah, I, I think this is just yeah, so, another way the government's trying to, to appease those that are, are, you know, have complaints
3: exactly and you have to pay tax on it and tax free savings accounts haven't didn't start for a while and you know you you can sort of be in retirement and say oh boy you know i i have uh, most of my money in in a stream where i'm going to have to pay tax on it and not enough in a stream where i don't
5: right right and, and i think the tax free savings account was created uh, for that reason and you know, I think it's becoming a very powerful tool when you look at husband and wife as an example. Now each of them can put over $63,000 in each of them into a tax-free savings account. So about 127000 because I think it's $63,500, $127,000 of tax-free uh, money or growth you could have on that money. And it's becoming a pretty good tool. And every year, as we know, now it will continue to grow another 6000 this year uh, and probably another 6000 etc. in years to come. So I would definitely start to look at if you don't have a tax-free savings account currently, definitely start to look at that as an option for investment.
3: There's a lot of confusing signals. Do we just stop worrying?
5: Well, can we ever stop worrying? You know, I, I always tell investors when, when I meet them, you know, I think there are always storm clouds on the horizon and there always will be. And and really the market moves based on what investors want to focus on on that day. At any given point in time, you could focus on the negative or the positive. And there are always negatives and positives to any trading day or month or, or year. So I think right now where we're at is is kind of back at the all-time highs that we set back in in the fall of last year. There are definitely some mixed signals. We know that growth around the world is slowing down, but we also know that central banks are realizing this, and that's why they've stopped raising interest rates, at least for the foreseeable future. And the market has responded very favorably to that. We also know that there are a lot of negotiations going on right now, trade negotiations between Canada and the U.S., U.S. and China. Obviously, those are the two main ones that really affect us every day. Uh, But also the U.S., just yesterday, you know threaten to put tariffs on European goods, so these are all things that affect the market as well and will affect the markets going forward so Unfortunately, we have to have one eye on the markets and one eye on the political environment because they both together you know kind of paint the picture as to how the day will go on, on any given day
3: Is there anything you want to leave us with for today
5: Well, I would say you know if you 're an investor today, I think you want to be cautiously optimistic. I think the markets can move higher unfortunately for for us investors a lot will be dictated by the political environment what happens in politics whether it's in Canada or the US or China or Europe uh, you know the world's a very small place we all inter intertwined and I just think that uh, you know do not be afraid of this pending recession that some people may be hearing uh, I don't see a recession coming anytime soon uh, but it's obviously uh, you know anything is possible you just want to buy good quality investments and you want to hold them and then And uh, obviously sell them when they reach your targets and, uh, you know, move
1: on. That was Senior Investment Advisor Alan Small of Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. With the last remaining ISIS stronghold now defeated, many countries, Canada included, must face an uncomfortable reality. There are people who have joined or supported movements like ISIS or Al-Qaeda who are now coming back to this country. Who are these individuals and how many have made it back to Canada? Libby was joined by terrorism expert Alex Wilner, an assistant professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and a Monk senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute.
6: We've uh, compiled a data set of 95 individuals and we've provided biographical detail of those 95 individuals the data set itself, um, which is built on open source information from media, uh, government sources, et cetera, uh, stretches back to 2006 and ends in 2017. So basically we've collected information on 95 individuals who are known to or are suspected of having facilitated, participated, supported, uh, Islamist, uh, violence or, and radical, or uh, of being radicals, um, between that, uh, in those 10 years. So basically it's, captures the rise and fall of ISIS, but it goes right back to the Toronto 18 case as well.
3: Do you have a, a good fix on how many people are actually in the country right now?
6: The reports that we have, and these are open source reports that are corroborated by uh, government, um, you know, they, the government figures suggest about 190 uh, to 250 overall Um at one point, traveled overseas. Some of these are fighters. Some of them are individuals, including minors or women, who went to uh, ISIS-held territory for reasons of building the so-called caliphate. right? So a, a whole mix of these extremist uh, travelers. Um, and then the corroboration is about 60 individuals have come back to Canada of that total number.
3: Okay, so 60 are already here, and uh, just before we move on to more substantive uh, things, do you have a fix on how many people want to come back?
6: That's a great question. We know that there are uh, up to dozens, several dozens, uh, currently being held uh, either in prison or in intern camps by Kurdish forces or by the Turks, uh, by Turkey, um, you know, these are individuals, again, women and children, including children that were born within ISIS-held territory over the last five years. Um, these, are, these individuals have a nexus to Canada. Uh, many of them, um, I believe, would like to come home to Canada. question is whether or not we let them in and under what condition.
3: Irfan, how do we compare, you know, on a per capita basis to the United States or to countries in Western Europe who have the same problem?
7: In our study, uh, which, of course, is a McDonald laurier Institute publication, uh, we found many interesting facts. For example, we found that uh, uh, most of these individuals were men, and there were very few women. Uh, the data also suggests that uh, the average age of the Canadian jihadists uh, is 27, which is almost similar to the average age of uh, U.S. jihadists. But if we compare this number uh, to data of Europeans, uh, Canadian jihadists are a few years older. And also, interestingly, uh, we have found that uh, the Canadian uh, jihadists uh, are uh, way more educated than those of uh, their European counterparts. And, of course, uh, the U.S., uh, there is not a big difference between the U.S. jihadists and uh, their Canadian uh, uh, fellows in terms of uh, education age uh, uh, and even uh, you can say the number is also not they're different
3: alex what difference does that make if they're Older, better educated, and I guess more of them are men. So we had uh, fewer women who went over to become brides of ISIS. Is that the correct conclusion?
6: By and large, Canadians in our data set are older. They're much more educated. Um, they're less. They were. They have less criminal motivation before the radicalization process, and they're more ethnically diverse than their European or uh, American counterparts. I think that's fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, you know there's a lot of academic literature relating uh, age and uh, motivation and participation in militancy. Uh, there's relationships between education and um, economic uh, development and uh, um, militancy. Same thing with between the nexus between criminality and terrorism. And what our data is trying to suggest is that those questions have a a, a, per, uh, um, a particular Canadian characteristic. If you will, that is distinct from the European and US experience.
7: What are we left with with all of this, Irfan? We shouldn't forget that many of these uh, foreign terrorists were engaged in cross-human rights violations, systematic masses, atrocities, etc., etc. But at the same time, we don't have sufficient evidence to uh, to persecute them. Uh, so the government should try to gather evidences and, of course, categorize them uh, so that the court can deal with them according to their crimes. And what we would suggest to the government is that uh, uh it should monitor uh, monitor the Canadian jihadists, including the returnees, uh, be it through websites or whatever database. Uh, and also, I would like to say that uh, a de-radicalization process is one of the most effective way, so that these extremists do not return back to terrorist or radical activities in Canadian soil. And, of course... For the long-term safety, the government should introduce some policy measure to ensure that uh, radicalization and terrorism do not expand in Canada. We should remember that uh, a terrorist organization may die, such as uh, ISIS, but uh, terrorism is very less likely to die. So we should always be prepared to counter. Uh, this global menace
3: Going into an election year, I don't think the government is keen to take this on. Uh, And if you can judge by the reaction to, for instance, the $10.5 million settlement for Omar Khadr, I don't think that they want to go anywhere near this and just kind of ignoring it, which is what they're doing now. I would suspect that that will continue.
6: The problem with ignoring it is that um, of the Canadian... that make up these foreign extremist travelers that are being currently held by the Kurdish forces, for instance, you know, there's a few Canadians of hundreds, potentially thousands of other foreigners. The Kurds have basically effectively said that they don't want to hold onto these individuals for much longer. And so there's political pressure from the Americans to repatriate um, and, and hopefully incarcerate some of these individuals. Uh, and there's pressure from the Kurds to potentially release them. There's also the risk of a, a prison break. We've seen that occur elsewhere in Syria and Iraq uh, in previous years. The point is that there are hardened criminals, hardened terrorists uh, being interned um, with no clear solution as to what to do. The most dangerous uh, consequence of this is to have them um, not be reintegrated or dealt with in a legal uh, manner, but to rejoin uh, the battlefield in Syria or in Iraq or elsewhere in North Africa uh, and the Middle East more broadly. So again, you know, it's a hard place. Um, it's a hard. There's no easy solution, and we're stuck between Iraq and a uh, Iraq and a hard plate.
1: That was terrorism expert Dr. Alex Wilner. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Trudeau Liberals are being criticized over a decision to give grocery chain Loblaws $12 million to retrofit their fridges to make them more energy efficient. They've defended the decision by saying the money will go to upgrade systems at 370 stores and make a big dent in their emissions. Detractors argue that Loblaw is a massive corporation that makes hundreds of millions of dollars and they can afford to pay for their own retrofits. Loblaw is also trying to win back consumer confidence for its role in the recent bread price-fixing scandal. For Reaction, Libby spoke with Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Laura Babcock, President of Power Group Communications.
8: It's just a tremendously disappointing move from government uh, to be helping out a, a major wealthy corporation, Uh, at a time when small business owners across the country are still in wait-and-see mode as far as the help that they're going to get uh, in taking on the carbon tax.
3: What exactly are are people saying? I mean, are they (laughs) kind of gobsmacked
8: by it? Absolutely. I mean, there are 4,000 independent grocers across the country. There are, you know, restaurants with refrigerators, butcher shops. Everybody would like help in terms of, you know, having a more energy efficient refrigeration or helping at that. It's a major cost. Uh, And so to see the government handing out the money to, you know, one of the biggest, wealthiest companies in the country uh, was incredibly disheartening.
3: Laura, what kind of uh, would you say is the PR impact of this $12 million?
9: Well, the big problem with this is that it's not unusual for governments when they want to launch a new policy to take a big, high-profile company and do a photo op. That's not unusual. It's often meant to say, hey, look, the big guy's doing it. You know, it's good for the environment. It's a good policy, and now you should do it, too. That is always the way governments like to go. However, there's so many PR mistakes with this, not only is Loblaw is not seen right now as a good corporate actor in this country. We went through the revelations of the, tw- of the what, 14-year bread price-fixing scandal. Yep. And then the allegations now about tax evasion, There's their unwillingness about around the minimum wage and, and how they treat their employees, and people are very upset about that. There's the personal wealth of the family. There's the profits that they generated in the last quarter. So this is not a company that you want to be standing next to at this moment, even if it is going to make a huge impact on the environment, the equivalent, to, as the government is saying, of taking 500,000 cars off the road. Great. Good that it's making a big impact. But you don't stand next to a company who's got their own PR crisis when you're dealing with your own headwinds that the S&C Lavalin is there where Canadians are already feeling like the liberal government is making too many compromises to their ethics in support of large companies. So this is just terribly bad optics. I think what's important for people to realize is that the federal government typically would give out $26 billion in corporate welfare. It's not unusual for them to prop up sectors and to push policies. The problem is the way that they've rolled this out, who they've rolled it out with, and the time in which they've done it.
3: Ryan, what would you like to leave us with? Who are you really for?
8: I mean, the the Small business owner, we've we've heard this government say. It. We've heard many governments say it. That's the lifeblood of Canada's economy, um, and on this, they're being left holding the bag at the expense of the big businesses. So we'd like to see uh, government. We'd like to see all parties step up in the uh, election campaign and and you know say what are you going to do for small business to help them navigate through this.
9: Laura Babcock. Well, I think that what Trudeau is vulnerable here is just with SNC Lavalin. They might have had the legislation that could be applied, but it was a decision made by a prosecutor that said no, SNC lavala did not fit the deferred uh, option because of their, of how many people were involved in the history and, and the level of what. They had been accused of. This is a big opportunity to your question about is there going to be some harnessing of this in the election against the, the Trudeau government. This is a big opportunity for the opposition party, then for the NDP as well, around the jobs and whatnot, to go after them and say, are you for small business? Who are you really for? And what kind of ethics do you have if these are the businesses that you're going to back for?
1: That was Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Laura Babcock, President of Power Group Communications. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phone. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Longtime subway rider Pat in Toronto phoned to share his views on Toronto's Transit issues.
4: This is simply going to cost us more money at the end of the day. And the problem is, as somebody who was on the subway the first day it ran in 1954, you can't get on the subway if you're in the city now. So what this is going to do, this is simply, I think, to buy votes for the people outside the GTA because the rest of us can't get on the subway during normal hours. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: Great calls, as always, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Diane in Toronto, who reminded us about the transit promises made in the past.
4: When I was 16, I had to start taking the subway to get to university. And over the five years, uh, increasing uh, concern was expressed with the crowding at Young and Bloor more and more every year, and they started talking about a relief line. I am now 67 years old, retired, and they're still talking about a relief line.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto if you have a comment email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on twitter at fightbacklibby. i'm jane brown join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown michelle saunders justin ecock and kelly robotham